Well, last week we were reminded that the church is the pillar and support of truth. And by the church, we mean you and me. We mean Christians. We are the pillars and supports of truth in the world. As the pillars of truth, we are to uphold, to display the truth in our lives by all that we do and say. And by doing so, we point men and women to ultimate truth, found only in the one who is the truth, our Lord Jesus Christ. As supports of truth, we are to undergird society with the truth, countering the fantasies and falsehoods about man and God that, and life in general that abound in our world. And upholding and supporting the truth is the highest and noblest task in the world and the one to which our Lord has called us and to which we have responded as the called out ones, the ecclesia, the church of the living God. If, therefore, someone wants to know the truth, he should feel confident looking to the church. But which one? With hundreds of different churches, where should one turn to find the truth? When they are saying different things, they can't all be right. Now, within the bounds of truth, there is room for differing opinions and practices. But not everyone who claims to have the truth really has it or has only a part of it. And some are quite simply wrong. In fact, some believers are wrong on many things, sincere, but wrong nonetheless. And some churches, using the word in its traditional sense as a body of believers, are wrong as well. They've allowed 2,000 years of opinions and pronouncements and traditions to distort the truth. And like most individual believers, they are no doubt sincere, but they may be, in fact, sincerely wrong. Now, our relationship with all sincere believers should be one of brothers in error recognizing that we also may have allowed opinion and tradition to distort the truth in some areas. And then together, we should commit ourselves to searching out the truth as revealed in God's word. However, there is also another category of falsehood that can be found in some churches using the term very loosely now using it to refer to any religious organization. And that's what I've chosen to call fraudulent faith. It's not error, it's intentional deceit. And it is this fraudulent faith to which Paul calls our attention this morning. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, we read... But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, 
paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. The first thing Paul says about fraudulent faith is that it comes in seasons. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the truth. Now, how the Spirit has made this known, Paul doesn't say. But he does say the Spirit has explicitly said that some would fall away from the faith from the truth as revealed in Christ in later times. Now, contrary to a widely assumed view, the term later times doesn't necessarily refer to the last days, the final period of history before Christ's return. In fact, the word translated times can also be translated seasons. Many commentators, therefore, believe this is simply a reference to various periods of history that were in the future from Paul's perspective. That what Paul is saying is, is that the Holy Spirit had made known to him that there would be seasons during which many would fall away from the truth due to the heightened activity of the forces of deceit. And it has happened. Shortly after Paul wrote this, the Gnostic heresy spread throughout the church, teaching that everything physical was evil and only the spiritual was good. It resulted in two opposing approaches to our material existence. One was to disdain everything physical and give up all physical pleasures, living a life of extreme self-denial. And the other was to indulge in everything physical and sensual because those things were held to be not at all related to our spiritual well-being. Obviously, such teaching can't be supported by the whole of Scripture, but many Christians were sucked in by the arguments of its promoters. But that wasn't the end of it. They weren't the only ones to be led astray down through history. The flock of God has been ravaged by wolves time and time again. And as revealed to Paul, these attacks do come in seasons. Now that's not to say that there's ever a period when error and deceit are absent, only that there have indeed been times when such activity is much more intense than others. The last part of the 19th century, for instance, was a pronounced season of deceit. It was the time when many new cults emerged here in America, including Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Christian Science. In more recent times, we witnessed a season of deceit in the 60s 
when the Moonies, Scientology, and Transcendental Meditation, just to name a few of the newer cults, came into being. Followed, of course, by the occult explosion in the early 70s and the New Age spirituality of the 80s and 90s. Now, this is as Paul predicted. So we should expect seasons of deceit and prepare for them. But all too often, Christians are lulled to sleep by times of little opposition. And instead of digging the trenches, preparing for the next onslaught of, 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 of error by diligently exposing error and deepening their roots of faith, they get slack in their study of the word and adopt a casual relationship with the truth. This makes them extremely vulnerable to the attacks that will come. And as Paul points out, these attacks on the faith, this fraudulent faith, comes from demons. Second part of verse 1. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrine of demons. You know, all too often we forget that we are in the midst of spiritual warfare. As Paul had already written to the church in Ephesus, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Contrary to popular opinion, Satan and his hosts are not mythological figures. They are very real and very much alive in our world. In fact, Paul called Satan the god of this world because of the control he has over most men's lives. And Jesus called him a liar and the father of lies. His hosts are here referred to as deceitful spirits. And indeed, Satan's desire is to deceive as many as possible, and he does so by planting false doctrines, false beliefs in the minds of men, planting in their minds what Paul refers to as doctrines of demons. Did you ever wonder where the cults get their crazy ideas? How the Mormons came up with the idea that before there can be a birth on earth, God and Mrs. God have to give birth to a soul in heaven. Or how Christian scientists decided that they could overcome sickness and evil by denying the reality of everything physical. Or how Jehovah's Witnesses came to the conclusion that Jesus was merely a creation of God, an angel. The answer is that these doctrines came from deceitful spirits even though they came through human agents, or as Paul called them, liars. For indeed, fraudulent faith comes through liars. Verse 2, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. While the majority of people caught up in fraudulent faith are merely deceived, the original human promoters of these doctrines, and no doubt 
Many others in positions of power and influence within the organization profiting from a particular fraudulent faith are men and women who have lost their conscience. They have had their consciences seared. They're individuals who either through the continual rejection of truth or through a conscious commitment to gain a following at any cost and a radical act of perverting the truth to get attention have seared, have cauterized their conscience to the point where it no longer bothers them to lie about things of eternal consequences. And their personal commitment to the beliefs they promote is only play-acting. It's hypocrisy calculated to enable them to gain whatever it is they hope to gain through deceiving others. This, I believe, Paul makes clear through the explicit revelation of the Holy Spirit. And anyone who has studied the lives of the founders of major cults can verify this to be the case. When you study the life of Joseph Smith, it's almost impossible to believe that other than Islam, which is primarily growing through immigration, Mormonism, or as they like to be called, the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, is the fastest-growing religion in America. Now, even before he supposedly discovered the gold plates and special glasses that enabled him to translate the Book of Mormon, he had been brought to court as a disorderly person and an imposter for using peep stones to hunt for treasure, tell fortunes, and locate lost objects for local farmers. His plagiarism of Solomon Spaulding's novel on the origin of the American Indians, which is included in the Book of Mormon, is a well-documented fact. And his supposed translation of a known pictograph from the Egyptian Book of the Dead that he found in a mummy's coffin that he bought from a traveling showman and included in the Pearl of Great Price shows that he had a vivid imagination but no ability as a translator. And according to an article that appeared in the State Journal Register just last week, it was charges of murder, treason, burglary, arson, larceny, and theft in Missouri that led to the founding of Nauvoo in Illinois. And it was after a riot that followed Smith's ordering the town marshal to destroy the presses of the Nauvoo Expositor that had published scandalous and derogatory allegations about the adulterous lives of Smith and other Mormon leaders that he was killed while being held in the Carthage jail. In spite of all that, he has been embraced by millions of people as a prophet of God and translator of latter-day revelations. And we could go on documenting the hypocrisy, deceit, immoral, and even illegal activity of many of the founders of major and minor cults. But let's move on to a more contemporary source of fraudulent faith, the deceit that comes from some authors of popular Christian books. Just this past week, a friend shared with me how Jesus Calling 
had become a very important part of his daily devotions. I told him that I thought I had read some very negative things about Jesus Calling, and a quick search for critical reviews of the book took me back to Tim Challies, whom I have found to be a very discerning and insightful Christian blogger. In 2015, he posted an article entitled, Ten Serious Problems with Jesus Calling. And he recently included it in a video entitled, Five Most Ridiculous Books to Ever Become Christian Bestsellers. In both, he mentioned how Sarah Young had written in early editions of her book, how she had longed to hear directly from Jesus outside of the Bible and discovered how to do so in a book written in the 1930s entitled God Calling, a devotional book written by two women who were listeners and recorded the messages they claimed God gave to them. The occultic practice she learned from their book is what she then used to receive the messages that became her book a book that was published by Thomas Nelson, a formerly reputable Christian publisher, and has sold over 15 million copies. And, by the way, she no longer gives credit to God calling in the introduction to Jesus calling. You know, the most frightening thing about these cults and books is that the fraudulent faith they promote is usually very attractive and looks very religious. Verse 3. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. What could be more religious than self-denial? Giving up things to prove the depth of your conviction. You know, Jesus told us that unless we're willing to deny self, take up the cross, and follow him, we could not be his disciples. But there's a big difference between self-denial and denying self. What Jesus was talking about was dying to selfishness, doing what we want and making him Lord of our lives. He was not talking about token denials that are intended to make us feel religious or earn a standing in God's eyes. Paul makes this distinction in Colossians 2, 20-23. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were still living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with the using in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly Indulgence. These things are often found in fraudulent faiths. 
And two of them that Paul specifically mentions in our text are the forbidding of marriage and abstaining from foods. These, or variations of them, are popular among cultic groups and sadly, even some churches. These things look religious. And they give the participant a feeling of piety. And they are actually a slap in the face of God. They're a rejection of the gifts God has given to us. A rejection of what is good. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Now, Jesus said it's not what enters into the mouth that defiles a man, but what proceeds out of it. Our Lord is not impressed by religious externals. He's concerned about the heart and what proceeds from it. He's concerned about lies and deceits and the doctrines of demons that draw us away from faith in the simple truth of the gospel, the good news that God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that he paid the penalty for our sins, that we don't do so by giving up things, and that all he wants is for us to recognize that fact and to live a life of gratitude before him. He didn't create this beautiful world with its bountiful gifts in the hopes that we would reject them. He created them for us to receive with gratitude and to put to their proper use, which is what is meant by sanctify something we do by following the guidelines given to us in Scripture and through prayer. For example, he didn't give us sexual urges to see if we'd love him enough to deny them all our life. But he did tell us to express them solely within the bonds of marriage and that only by doing so we could receive the full blessing he intended it to be. And he didn't give us a wide assortment of foods, including meats, to see if we would stand firm against the temptation to eat them. He gave them to us to enjoy and to receive with gratitude. Now, we can misuse his gifts. Some things aren't meant to be eaten or smoked. And some must be careful, and we must be careful not to put the gifts before the giver and bow before the God of materialism. And there are times when we do have to do without things for the sake of others. That's the proper role of fasting we find in the Old Testament and New. And there are times when we have to give up things for the sake of the kingdom of God, keeping our priorities straight. But don't fall for a fraudulent faith, even one that looks very religious by its demands and disciplines. That's a very popular word these days. One that in reality leads you to insult God 
by demanding that you reject the good things he wants you to have. Instead, come gratefully to the table that he has spread before us, both physically and spiritually, and enjoy the goodness of God. Come. All things are ready.